Let's give attention to God's word from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, Paul says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, excuse me, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray just as Paul has prayed that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might know the hope to which we've been called in light of eternity. Put things in perspective for us by by your spirit. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the sermon is entitled Faith, Hope, and Love, and Paul sees a connection in his writings. You'll see this a lot of faith, hope, and love. Did you see that in this passage that I just read? He begins with, he's praying for more hope, and and there's three what's in this text. There are subordinating clauses for you literature people that love that stuff. But if you, if you look at verse 18, you see the first what is what is the hope, verse, the hope of the calling. The second what is the end of verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The third what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So those are the three what's that Paul is praying for these believers. We're only going to look at the first one today, which is what is the hope to which he's called you? But there's a connection between faith, hope, and love because he's, he sees their, their you know, he, he's heard of their faith and their love towards the saints, and so he's praying for more hope. And so uh, there's a connection. Colossians 1 verse 4 to 6 has the same idea. Paul says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love that you have for all the saints because of the hope. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Our certain hope, because of the resurrection and because of our future in Christ, it's the engine. It's the engine that produces the horsepower of faith in Christ Jesus that allows us to accelerate towards others and building the church up in love. Without hope, you can't cope. So our hope isn't based on a whim. It's not a hope that we use in our expressions today, like, you know, man, I hope the Redskins win the Super Bowl next year. I mean, I've used that illustration many times because every time, what happens? They haven't won the Super Bowl in over 25 years or something. So I could say, boy, I hope they they have a defensive line next year. I can hope for a lot of things, but the reality is I've been hoping a long time. And the hope is not really based on any confidence. So when we say hope, we don't mean it like the world says hope. With our hope, when the Bible talks about hope, it's a certain confidence. 
So a true story that's told, and, and this really happened. I came across this story this week. In 1927, there's an S-4 submarine. This is actually when they rescued the ship and actually brought it up. But this S-4 submarine, it's called the SS-109, it was accidentally rammed and sunk by a Coast Guard destroyer called the Paulding. The, Paul, the Paulding. And it was doing rum patrol. So this was back when, when prohibition was in effect. And this was up near Cape Cod. And this Coast Guard ship hits this sub that had come up and sunk the sub. And so the Coast Guards, in their heroic efforts to try to save this uh, sub, they, they lowered lifeboats, but all they saw were air bubbles and some oil on the surface. Well, there were six men who were trapped in the forward torpedo room, in the torpedo room that had been sunk. And this was, and there, so they sunk down to the bottom of Atlantic, not very deep at that area. And uh, there's no texting, there's no cell phone, there's no, the walkie-talkie hasn't even been invented, okay? So they communicated by Morse code by banging on the hull. And so they tapped out a message, these six guys, and the message they tapped out is, is there any hope as they're sunk at the bottom of the Atlantic? And somehow they were able to try to rescue them. They sent a message back. Somehow they morse-coded back to them. I don't know if they were able to bang on the hole back to them. But their message back was, there is hope. Everything possible is being done. Well... I wish I had a good story to tell you here, but the weather didn't cooperate. And their hope turned into futility because it was halted and they weren't able to get these six men uh, up from the bottom of the Atlantic and they died. Well, is our hope like that this morning where you say, well, there's hope. Everything possible is being done. You see, our hope is that the only thing possible was done. It's in a person named Jesus Christ. And it's not in your doing that you hope. It's kind of like when O.J. Simpson, I remember when he, when he had been acquitted uh, from the death of Nicole Brown Simpson and they caught him on, a, on the golf course and they came up to him with a microphone and they, somehow they wanted to get some quote from him. And he said, all I'm trying to do now is just get into heaven. And I thought, wow, good luck, O.J., because your confidence and your hope is in yourself. I'm trying to get into heaven. Well, are you trying? Is that where your hope is built? You see, here's where hope is found. This is what Paul's praying for. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ. He was the second Adam who comes to undo what the first Adam had run amok. He was born of a virgin with no sin. He's not born with the sin of Adam that we are born with. He lived a sinless life, and he died a sinner's death. He lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died. On the third day, he rose from the grave, proving that death has no hold on him or on us who trust in him. We all have a date with death, unless the Lord returns. So we need something that's a little bit better than something that this life can give us. And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Christianity is built on miracles. 
You have to believe in the miracles. Tim Keller says about the accounts of Buddha and Muhammad, he says, their miracles, the things they did, they worked for the religious believers within the context of their own religious systems, whether they're historic or not. He says, here's the reason why, because the purpose of miracles in those other religions is to instruct us or to inspire us to live a certain way, but the miracles of Jesus, his miraculous birth, his miraculous resurrection, they actually have to have happened because the purpose of miracles in Jesus' life is not to instruct us how to live, but to save us. And so Paul is praying and he's, and he's reminding them of the hope that, to which we've been called and the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And apparently there must be like ranks of angels and, and Jesus is above all of them of power, dominion and authority and every name that's named, not only in this age and the age to come. And he put all things under his, his feet and gave him his head over all things of the church. So consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is good news that the church brings. What other message is telling you, hey, the guy we love and worship rose from the dead? And some people, many people say, well, there's a lot of fake news out there. Maybe this is fake news. Well, I like what N.T. Wright, when he makes a distinction between science and history, he says, science studies the repeatable. History studies the unrepeatable. Caesar only crossed the Rubicon once, and if he crossed it again, it would have meant something different a second time. There was not could only be only our one first landing on the moon. The fall of the second temple, Jerusalem, took place in AD 70 and never happened again. Historians don't, of course, see this as a problem and are usually not shy about declaring that these events certainly took place even though we can't repeat them in the laboratory. So we try to all of a sudden pull a science trick when we're reading history and try to get some kind of over-spiritual card uh, in our skepticism. Well, we need to doubt our doubts. Why, why do we easily believe that Caesar crossed the Rubicon, but we have a harder time believing that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River? Why is that? Doubt your doubts. Because our sinful inclinations have a hard time accepting, could it be? And when we hear about the resurrection, you have to account for how in the world can you explain the church? How do you explain these people who were poor, who got killed for their faith, grew the, the churches exploded while they're being persecuted? C.F.D. Mole says, the miraculous emergence of the church in face of brutal Roman persecution rips a great hole in history. It's the hole, the size and shape of resurrection. Consider that the Jews who came up with the story that the disciples stole Jesus' body. You ever heard the expression, your confession proves too much? It's kind of like when my, when my dad said he knew he was getting slippers for Christmas. And my reply as a youngster was, you peaked. Your confession proves too much. I mean, he was saying, I know I'm getting slippers for Christmas. And I said, you peaked. He said, ah, I am getting slippers for Christmas. Well, when you say the disciples stole his body, your confession proves too much. You're conceding too much. You're admitting to an empty tomb. You're admitting you can't find his body. You're admitting you've got a big problem. We've got to come up with something. We've got an empty tomb. 
It can, the confession proves too much. The cover-up is, is, proves too much. And why would women be the first witnesses to testify to the resurrection when that's such a black eye, when women are not even allowed to give testimony in a Jewish court of law? Why list them first? Unless it actually happened. Unless it was that way. Unless hope had broken in. Paul's praying now that it'll sink down this hope. You remember that great line in Shawshank Redemption where Morgan Freeman playing red said, let me tell you something, friend, hope's a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. Hope's a dangerous thing on the inside. You see, he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe there was any way out. But Andy believed, and he kept digging, and he kept digging. And his hope also inspired him to love and provided a way for Red to get to him. And the story's a great story about hope of getting out of prison. Well, Jesus got out. He was raised on the third day, and he's taken us with him. And it says in chapter 2 in the second chapter that we are now seated with him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus already. And when he comes again, we're coming with him. You see, Paul loved the Ephesian church. He hadn't been there in four years. He's now writing in prison, and he's praying for these Ephesian believers. And he prays just the opposite of what, how we would tend to pray. We tend to pray for those who don't know Christ and those who aren't doing well spiritually. Now, Paul prays for the people like that too, I'm sure, but, but he says he doesn't cease to give thanks and he mentions them in his prayers and he's letting us eavesdrop into what his prayer is for the Ephesian believers, but it's also telling us this is how we should pray. He isn't jealous when he hears about the Christians in Ephesus, even though he's kind of stuck in prison. He doesn't try to stop their story or put down their faith or their love or, or let me tell you about the church in Thessalonica if you think you're special. He doesn't do any of that. He's excited to hear about how a church is doing and growing in Christ and their love. Nothing pleased Paul and John and the other apostles more than to hear about the progress and prosperity of other Christians growing in their faith and remaining true to the faith. And so he's compelled to pray for the believers now to know more of what is theirs already in Christ. He's asking that their eyes would be opened. Spurgeon put it like this, Charles Spurgeon, great preacher last century from, from England. He said, yes, brethren, he who sees most needs to have his eyes enlightened to see more. For how little is yet of the glory of God have any of us beheld. Even that favored pilgrim who has, been, who has led the shepherds to the top of Mount Clear to stand there with telescopic glass and gaze into the glories of Emmanuel land. Emmanuel's land has only begun to perceive the things which God has prepared for them that love him. I pray, God, that if we already see, we may see more until our eyes shall be, shall be so strengthened that the light of the new Jerusalem shall not be too strong for us, but amid the splendor of God which outshines the sun, we shall find ourselves at home. But if believers need to have their eyes enlightened, how much more those who are unconverted? They're altogether blind and consequently can't see their need of enlightenment is far greater. They're born blind and the God of this world takes care to further darken their minds. Around them there broods a sevenfold midnight, the gloom of spiritual death. 
They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope, grope in the noonday as in the night. Quoting from Isaiah 59. He says, O blind eye, may Jesus touch you. May his spirit bring his sacred eyes off to make you see. You see, we need to have our eyes opened so we don't fail to possess our possessions, which if you remember Francis Schaeffer used to talk about the biggest sin that he saw was that we failed to possess our possessions. And so we've come here to the Grand Canyon of God's mercy, and sometimes we feel like we can hardly see a thing because we have spiritual cataracts and we need to have our eyes opened, even this morning. Otherwise, we find ourselves like, like the guys here walking with Jesus. I mean, these guys are walking on the road of Emmaus, and Jesus is right there with them. And they're looking sad, and, and, and Jesus says, you know, he's saying, you know, are you the, and they say to him, to Jesus, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus just plays along. What, what things? What, what, what's going on? Well, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who's a prophet mighty in deed and word and, and, and before all the people and how our chief priests and rulers, they delivered him up to be condemned to death. They crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who had redeemed Israel. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning and when they didn't find his back body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Him they did not see. They're looking right at him. The Lord of glory is right there. And then it says that when he gave bread and gave thanks, he was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread. He, they recognized him. Jesus. May we know the hope to which he's called us. There's a true story told of William Randolph Hearst. He's a guy that had the big, owned a whole bunch of newspapers. At one time, I think he owned 30 newspaper companies when newspapers were making money. That was long ago, okay? Well, he once read about an extremely valuable piece of art, which he decided he must have to his extensive collection. He instructed his agent to scour the, galler the galleries of the world to find this masterpiece he was determined to have at any price. And after many months of painstaking research, the agent reported that the piece already belonged to Mr. Hearst Estate and had been stored in one of his warehouses for many years. He already had it. So what do you have? Here's the promise, the hope to which he's called you. There's lots of verses. Let me give you a couple. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9 is a promise. God who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Hebrews 9.15, therefore he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive 
the promised eternal inheritance. Leave that quote up there for a minute because I want you to see there's a difference between an internal call and the external call. The external call of the gospel is calling you to repentance and calling you to believe. But the internal call is something that can't be denied. It can't be resisted. It's something that is effectual. It will accomplish its purpose because those who are called will be justified and those who are justified will be glorified. And what he's begun, he will complete. And here is the promise. It's telling us those who he's called are going to receive the promised eternal inheritance. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, and he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're sealed with the Holy Spirit and you've, God has opened your eyes, brought you to himself to see Jesus and the gospel as your need, and you cry out to him to be saved, you're going to receive the promised inheritance. It's more, it's more certain than the interest on the debt that you owe in your house. It's more certain than, than the taxes you're going to have to pay if you have a social security number. I mean, you can count on this more than that. Assurance of salvation, J.C. Ryle, this hope. J.C. Ryle was a preacher last century. He said this, The assurance of salvation enables you to feel that the great business of life is a settled business. The great debt is a paid debt. The great disease is a healed disease. And the great works a finished work. In all other business, diseases, debts, works are then by comparison small. In this way, assurance makes you patient in tribulation, calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid of evil tidings, and in every condition content, for it gives you a fixedness of heart. The great debt, the great disease, the great works, the great business, all done. Jesus said it's finished at the cross. You see, Piper, when he speaks of this in Hebrews 10, he says the freeing power of love comes from hope because you have a better possession and an abiding one. You're not paralyzed by loss. And you token fans out there, which I haven't read him, so I'm giving you a quote I haven't read myself, but this is like Tim Keller's all-time favorite quote, and he reads token every year, so here it is. He says, they're peeping among the cloud rack above a dark Tore high up in the mountains, Sam saw a, wa- a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His courage before had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. Now for a moment his own fate and even his master ceased to trouble him. Putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. He all of a sudden was reminded. He possessed the possession. I know some of you guys are really enjoying the John Bunyan class that Dave Hawes is doing on the Pilgrim's Progress, and you guys haven't gotten to to Doubting Castle owned by Giant Despair, but I'll remind you of the story. So there's, on a certain point in their, their journey, 
Christian and his companion hopeful, they step aside from the true way into bypath meadow because it seemed easier and it was going in the same direction as the way, but soon they realized their mistake and journeyed back toward the way. But as they tra traveled, they, they fell asleep and they, they on the grounds of a castle. And it turned out it was Doubting Castle, owned by giant despair. And when the giant found them, he threw them into his dark and nasty dungeon, and they suffered terribly from capture from Wednesday until their escape on Sunday. On Thursday, at the suggestion of his wife, Dividends, giant despair beat them severely and mercilessly. And on Friday, he told them to kill themselves since there was no hope for them. And on Saturday, angered that they had not committed suicide, he showed them the bones of those he, whom he had previously murdered by tearing them to pieces. And he assured them that their end would soon come in the same manner. And then he beat them again. And on midnight on Saturday, despite their wounds, Christian and Hopeful began to pray like Silas and Paul in Acts 16. And they continued in prayer throughout the night. And then we hear about their amazing escape. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in this passionate speech. What a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I, when I may as well walk at liberty? I have a key in my bosom called promise that I am persuaded will open any lock in Doubting Castle. And using the key, Christian and Hopeful escaped. Now, it doesn't take too much rocket science to figure out the parallels to our life here. You see, Christian had the key the whole time, but he didn't use it. It was kind of like my brother tells me the story one time flying out of Montgomery County Air Park when he was training a guy how to fly and they had a twin engine airplane and unbeknownst to my brother, the student had switched the tanks and so they got off the ground, they're about five, not even 500 feet and the engine starts to sputter. Well, in a twin airplane at 500 feet, that's not a whole lot of time. So he instantly said, look for a field. And his reflex was instantly, we'll just switch the tanks. Maybe the other one's got gas in it. And lo and behold, the engine came to life. My brother still lives. You see, he had the fuel, but he had to switch the tanks. And some of you need to just switch tanks this morning. It's called apply promise. Believe the promises of God instead of believing your doubts. And believing the promise here is the promise that drives out despair, out of Doubting Castle. So let me give you, I just want to rapid fire, give you 10 reasons why you should have hope this morning. That you would know the hope of your calling. Here they are. Number 10, you're getting a new body and it's going to be just like Jesus' glorified body. Philippians 3 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. That's the future of your body and mine. That's the first reason. Number nine, you're getting a glorified mind that's gonna understand the mysteries of, of God and if I'm understanding this verse correctly, it's as much as he now fully understands me. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see 
face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Go home and think about that. Because that just, I can't even get my mind around that. How can a finite mind know as I'm fully known? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But it's telling me. Number eight, creation itself is going to be delivered from its curse of its bondage to decay. There's not going to be these awful viruses and these awful flu bugs and these awful things that bite you and leave weird bumps on your body and, and, and things that could just eat and kill you and, and, you know, you're scared of. The curse is going away. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth and, until now. But as we sing in the Christmas carol about no more let sins and sorrows meet nor thorns infest the ground, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. We haven't really seen green grass yet. We haven't really seen a blue sky yet. But we're gonna. Number seven, there's gonna be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. Death will be swallowed up in complete victory. The old spiritual is no more dying there. We're going to see the king. The Bible says he'll swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Number six, God's going to vanquish all evil and bring retribution and wrath on evildoers. That's part of what we celebrate as Christians. Some people, I mean, we're praying now for people to repent, but we will be part of the judgment. And it says the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they're going to be tormented day and night forever. And if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he too is thrown into the lake of fire. That will be a joy that there won't be blasphemy in heaven. There won't be people cursing God's name. I won't have to have locks on my doors. There there won't be people stealing my stuff. Rubbing your name down, spreading lies about you. It won't happen. Number five, we're going to have a great feast and celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Bible says in Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for, him, for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow, aged wine, well-refined And Jesus says in Luke 12, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. That's Jesus saying he's going to do the serving. So God's the chef. Jesus is the waiter. Maybe we'll get to do the dishes. Sounds good to me. It's going to be beyond our wildest dreams. God will reward us, number four, for the sufferings in this life that we endured for the sake of his name. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of false things against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. 
Hebrews 11 said others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Number three, we'll be reunited with loved ones who love Jesus. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. But since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. Number two, we will no longer be able to sin. There's the hope to which he's called you. It was our call to worship this morning. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are in heaven, and to God the the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. They're perfect. They don't sin anymore. They don't wrestle with sin. They don't struggle with it. They don't have that agony. And number one, we will dwell with the Lamb and God will be with us. Revelation 7, 17 says, The Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, if there's hope, then we can cope with the now. And some might say, well, that's just a bunch of pie in the sky. And my reply to that is, we've got pie. Do you have pie? And we're certain about our pie because it's based on facts that in time, space, and history, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so we are called now to prepare our minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This enables us to fight our spiritual battles with the helmet, 1 Thessalonians says, which is the hope of salvation. This is our hope, and that in turn, when we have that hope in place in light of eternity, then it frees us to love, and it fuels our faith. But hope is what propels us into action. And so go, give your life away. It's not like, you know, you have to get everything in this life. You already have it. Think about that. And then it even says that we're in his inheritance. We'll get into that next week. He loves his people. And so we can rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, there's none like you. You are great and mighty, and yet you became small and weak and suffered and died on our behalf. Take the curse so that we might get the blessing to be cast out, that we would be brought in. We praise you for your triumph. And thank you that now you live forever, interceding for us, coming back. We praise you that you are alive and that you rule and reign over all things. We do ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would know more of this hope to which we have been called that it would propel us to love and lay down our lives for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.